So uh, we were just talking about your your first protest. What uh, you, you described what it was like, but what were you seeing there? What what uh, what what could you see and hear around you? Okay, so it was it was in the Midan neighborhood, southern Damascus. It's 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 one of the older neighborhoods, so it's not particularly well developed. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure um, it did not change from how it looked like a hundred years ago. So we're in, we're, we're in one of the older mosques in there, my father and I, it's just after, it's after a feast, after feast prayers during the first day of Ramadan. I'm not a religious person, but mosques were one of the few places, uh, where people could gather, uh, without fear of reprisal. Because I guess the authorities would assume, uh, that people were gathering because they wanted to pray. Uh, some people, wanted to pray and protest some people went to just protest and what would happen is you know the prayers would start it would take around somewhere between 20 to 30 minutes it end and almost immediately people would start chanting uh given that this was out of mosque they probably chanted something with like allahu akbar but but you know outside the mosque once they moved outside the mosque it could it would shift to uh with more mainstream chants regarding, let's say, God, uh, Syria, and freedom only, which was a contrast to the regime chant, which was God, Syria, and Bashar only. In terms of what I would see, it, it was it was a it was a great sight. Yeah, you know, th- the mosque was filled, and there were people outside too. And so when they, you exited, you'd find these these streets, the streets of Midan. They were they're pretty narrow streets, but they were filled. Well, I told, like, as far as my eye could see, of course, this was nighttime, so I can't, I can't, it, my, my eye couldn't see as far as I, I'd like to go, but we were chanting. It was, it was a very festive and celebratory, um, mood. Um, and this was my first protest, so I was, I was having a good time. It was, it was like party mode. My father was with me. It was, it was, it was probably the first time he saw anything like this. We're, I guess, about five, ten minutes into the protest, we hear a loud boom. We don't know what's going on, but I remember the, like, we were looking down a narrow street and everyone, you know, it's, it kind of, it's split like the way people describe how Moses split the Red Sea. They just went into the nearest alleyway or side street and that street was empty. And I guess that, that was just, it, yeah, it was a festive mood. It was celebratory. People were having a good time chanting, venting, venting their frustrations. But then that boom just, it, it, it hits you so quickly that of the very real danger that you could be facing should, should you get caught by the wrong people. Wow. So was that like a, a warning shot or? I, I, I don't know what it was. I, I don't know what it was. It was a loud boom. And I guess, I guess, you know, given that I was with my father, my, my father is not, he's not, he's not the most mobile of people. So it was, I was, I was, I knew I would be, if, if it was, it became an issue of running away from someone. I knew I'd be fine. I was, I, I was, I could run back then. I could run pretty quickly. Um, I can't say the same about my father. So I guess my, my, my father just gestured to me that we should leave. And yeah, we did. Well, uh, we got into a car and I guess there's, you know, given that we weren't spotted by anyone, it was, and we were exiting. As you're exiting the Midan area, area, we came, we came into, we, we saw a large, I guess, num- number of Shabiha, and they were, they were dressed in their garb, 
um, you know, it looks like right, right, there was, there is right, there were among them that were just in right gear garb, but we saw weapons, we saw, we saw, um, I guess, grenade launchers, in a sense, like a, like a flashback grenade or a, or a tear gas grenade. Um, it was, it was a, it was a rattling sight. Cause you know, you were just like, oh, I was worried about these people. But once you got into a car, you kind of just like, it's kind of like you melt into a crowd. They can't identify if you were part of the protest or not. And, uh, you know, that's where the, we, we, we quickly, I guess, moved away from the area. And that was, thankfully, we didn't get into, we weren't threatened with any danger. Picture this, you're driving down, like, we, we, I forget where exactly we parked the car, but we, we got into the car again. A lot of the crowd has started dispersing. And we're, we're driving, we're driving towards the exit. So we're going, and then we reach this one street, and then at the very end, you see these, all, all these Shabiha in, gar- in their garb. And for a moment, you're, you're worried. But, you know, it's not like they were making any movements towards us or practically looking at us. They were aware we were there. But I guess, um, they just don't know if you were involved or not. And you just drive by, you pretend like there's nothing going on, and it worked. And, and you know what? That that taught me, like, for future protests, that told that taught me a lot of things. Holy shit, that's intense. It, it was. It, it was. I wanted more. I mean, <laughs> you know, y- 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 the excitement, the fear. You you get back home, and you realize I want more. What, what was it? The defiance against the regime that you wanted more of, or the the sense of danger? I, I was very scared of danger. I did not want to get caught. I did not want to be, I didn't want to be seen as a hero in the sense that I got caught and I don't know. I did not want that. Okay. But, but, but I generally thought if I could do this in a smart way, if I was aware situation where, where I was, if I, if I thought things through, came up with a, with an escape plan, I could do this for a bit. And, and I started doing more of it. It wasn't, it wasn't so easy. It was, uh, it was scary. I wouldn't tell my parents. That was the only time my parents knew that I was going to protest. Otherwise, otherwise, what I would do is I would tell my, my siblings every time I tried to go to a protest. Sometimes they wouldn't materialize, but I, but I'd, I'd tell my my siblings, and I would write on my on my left forearm. I would put my my father's number, my name, and my blood type. I'd write it down. And uh, looking back now, it's uh, I think it was very dangerous. Some of the situations I put myself in. Uh, because sometimes, sometimes, uh, I wouldn't, if I, I wouldn't go to, like, it didn't work out, protest didn't work out, but I showed up someplace and, you know, um, I, if I found regime propaganda, namely pictures of Bashar al-Assad, um, I'd take it, I'd tear it, I'd tear it, and if someone had seen me, I guess that, that could have been the, the end of me. Yeah. And I, I'd done it at least three times. Thankfully, I was never caught. And even, and one of them, one of them was in, not so far from Bashar's actual residency. Really? Where he, where, where he actually lived. Oh, man. Um, I guess, and I guess that, that's just a testament to, like, I was dumb, dumb but lucky. How old dumb were you lucky. when all this was going on? 19. This was 11. I had just turned 19 years old. It sounds almost like what a lot of other 19-year-olds would talk about, but it's also very unique at the same time. Like, yes. Dude, that, that took... What you did took balls, man. Like, that... <laughs> most people would not have the guts to do what you were doing, dude. Thanks. You know, otherwise, things uh, besides protests, I started becoming a regular commentator during the day you know Syria had, has a hot summer I, I just 
I had I had an internship. Um, I wasn't getting enough work. I had I had a lot of t- downtime at the internship, and there's this one particular Sierra focused forum called Sierra Comment. It was run by a professor at the University of Oklahoma uh, called Joshua Landis, and uh, I would I remember he. Syria just started getting interesting around the world, and he was so he was he was getting a lot of traffic, and there was a huge there was a comment section in his in his website where I started engaging in it and talking about it, and um, I realized a lot of the commentators they were not from Syria, they were outside Syria. Maybe some of them were Syrians, but um, I was I was young, I was I was very mobile, and and I could I guess fit, and uh, I was good with technology. There, there was a lot of things on his website that it kind of shocked me because a lot of things were easily discreditable. People were making claims about shootings in Damascus, about you know militants in Damascus shooting Christian quarters, and I, I thought, I thought, you know, if you and and Landis and and Landis would give them front page coverage, like he would put this on, on the front page of his website. It's not like it was in some corner of his website, but he was giving them front front page. And it, it kind of angered me because this stuff is easily discreditable. And I remember one of at one point uh, I was operating under the pseudonym of some guy in Damascus. At one point, uh, literally some guy in Damascus. Yeah, that was my that was my pseudonym for short. It was SGID. Um, That's cool. At, at one point, at one point, uh, the people were making claims. Of course, militants were they were trying to you know kickstart sectarian tensions and shooting up. Uh, churches in, in Damascus, and I I remember back then I went I got my, my phone I went to that particular uh, that particular church I took footage of it I I asked people around if anything got shot nothing did wow um, and I and I sent it I sent it to Landis and but, you know uh, I gotta give him credit next next day front front page front page coverage on on his website he posts my video and he tell and he says no this place was not shot as as previously reported and uh you know i felt i, I felt like okay that's that's one useful thing i did for syria today was like i was able you know being being young being having free time being aware being being knowledgeable of Syria, of damascus and, and its surroundings i was i felt that i was in a special place where you know i could try to join protests and i'd love doing that but like I could I can make use of my cell phone, go and report footage, and I remember I had to come up with all these kind of not so obvious ways to so I wouldn't get I wouldn't get caught like recording things like you know turning on my my, my phone's camera then pretending to be in a conversation, but you know pointing the camera while while it's on it's it's on my face the phone's on my face as if I'm in a conversation but pointing the camera at what I want recorded then of course after you take the footage back then we, uh, phones uh, used memory cards. So you take out the memory card, put it like probably put it in my sock. So in case in case I'm stopped and they ask for my phone to be searched, there's nothing. That's that's how I operated, and uh, it got it got to the point where I was picked up once by the Guardian uh, newspaper in, in the UK. They were they were uh, relaying what I, what I was reporting. Um, you know. Uh, then you get these observations of how the city is changing. Uh, in particular, in neighborhoods, taxis were increasing. Why were taxis increasing? What's going on? And then you realize the Syrian, intelli- Syrian intelligence. Um, I don't know if they were. I don't know if this was all situation, but they had a a, a sizable fleet of taxi taxi disguised cars. But they were intelligence and intelligence intelligence agents, and they would roam around the city. And I guess they would report and like 
and then I realized like um, outside outside the general intelligence compound in Kaparsus in Damascus, you'd see these a huge row of taxis lined up. Wow. So it's either I, it's either I don't know like there's there's some uh, there, there's a taxi union over there, <laughs> or or it's uh, you you connect the dots and like no they're they're disguising themselves as taxis to go around city and this was something I'd report too and it would it would it made it made the uh, it made the news at Landis's website too. So I I remember you said you were going to college in Beirut at that time. Mm-hmm. You were so you were like coming back to Syria like once or twice a week to do this stuff. <laughs> So this was the summer. This was the summer. I was doing an internship in Damascus. I was not going to Beirut because I, had no, I was not enrolled in the summer semester. Oh, okay. What happened was the semester right after that, uh, I was back in Beirut. I was spending most of my time in Beirut. Uh, there was no re- refugee crisis back then. Um, and Syrians, Syrians were still confused how far, how far would this develop? How, how bad would this get? Syrians, I guess a lot of uh, the, the Syrian community in my university, the American University of Beirut, was split. Um, the American University of Beirut, the Syrians are, is come from a very privileged background in Syria. There, I, I would not say the average the average Syrian goes to uh, to the to AUB. Hmm. Um, people people would you know in, in a privileged position go whether whether they were connected to government or not, and they were split. I guess uh, I can't say who was the majority or who was the minority, but within I guess. I guess if this was a, this is this could be a, I could describe it as a microcosm of Syria's elite, the Syrian the Syrians that could afford private education in in Lebanon, um, and they were evenly split. Now, how much of them were act would actively commit to their cause, as in they would actively commit to supporting the regime or not, or opposing the regime or not? Uh, that's it. That's a different story. So I think that's a that's a good segue to the next question I wanted to ask. How how would you describe the the politics of the Syrian opposition, or I should say the people, the different groups within the Syrian opposition? Um, I guess I guess the the best the best for, for the, the best place to start is they're not organized. Mm. Um, they couldn't find they couldn't really form a cohesive unit to oppose uh, the regime, and I guess this was one of the biggest reasons the uprising failed. Um, they, there's different schools of thoughts. Islamist, not Islamist, uh, leftist, right wing. I, I always thought, I always thought the Islamists in Syria got too much attention and that the, um, they were overvalued in the sense that, you know, yes, is, Islamists, whether they were moderate or, or fundamentalists. Yeah. They, they do, they do have, they do have some, they have, they have sizable support in Syria. But, but, when when the Muslim Brotherhood was was a uh, a, a quote unquote legitimate party in Syria, when when they had when they were entitled to run in part in parliament and have votes, I think at their peak at their peak they did not have more than twenty percent of parliament. Wow. Um. I think, but however, uh, I I feel that what the regime did to Syria. It just gave it gave the environment for a particular brand of violent Islamism to uh, flourish. Uh, moving on. Um, so yes, I could say a lot, a lot of the opposition. I think I think the most I was exposed to was leftists, uh, socialists, some communists. Uh, they were opposed to the regime. Um, always, oh, they always like to describe themselves as anti-imperialists. 
That's so uh, ironic, con- considering like how uh, Western socialists, communists, and anti-imperialists often talk about the Syrian uprising. I'd agree. I'd agree. But but you know what? They, you know, some of them some of them also had these um, you know co- contradictory thoughts, and they had like very nuanced views of of how they want they they wanted things to happen in Syria. So some of them. Um, you know, within within the, the Syrian opposition, the, some of these leftists and stuff, there was a lot of uh, accusations of your 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 regime at better because you don't want you don't want a no fly zone over Syria, or you're a, you're a traitor because you're you're asking for foreign military intervention in Syria. There was a lot of this going on. Wow. Um, it it would get to the point of out of some would some of these leftists that are, that are opposed to the regime, but they would come to the point. Well, if if it's going to come to a point of if I had to choose between Assad or external external intervention, I'm gonna stick with Assad. Um, all these these red lines where you know don't cross this, and uh, you know people there are lots of tensions. Um, there was a lot of finger pointing. Uh, I guess that's one reason why the opposition wasn't cohesive. Um, and and I guess you know um, some of these leftists also had shared in the agenda had some. You know, they had some shared interests with the, with the Assad regime. They liked, they they honestly believed the regime had anti-imperialist credentials. Um, they 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 liked that the regime was opposed to Israel. They liked that they they the regime supported Hezbollah and Hezbollah uh, was involved in a military confrontation with Israel. And they thought, you know what, this is good enough. This is this is good enough that you know, um, we'll appreciate it and. If we don't like this regime, but uh, if 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 someone's calling for its removal, it has to be done in a certain way. Um, personally, for myself, I always thought uh, I I never bought into this whole uh, you know communist social socialist agenda. I'm I I understand I understand that you know sometimes it, your economy has to have these some some socialized uh, welfare and stuff, but. I just never, I just didn't like their, their way that they thought Syria should be run and that we should sacrifice, um, in our, our, uh, some rights, internal rights, domestic, domestic issues, just because we wanted to have a certain standing in, in foreign policy. I thought that was silly. Yeah. So, what was the relationship like between uh, the leftists, or at least the more, I guess you could say, secular liberals within the Syrian opposition, versus the various um, schools of Islamism. Um. So one of one the first thing the first thing you would hear with with leftists or socialists when you want to discuss how should Syria should be post Assad is like you tell them, do you want it to be a secular country? And I guess any smart smart leftists or socialists say no, no, no. We don't want it to be a secular country. We want to want we want it to be a country of civ- of civic rights and duties. Because and they would say this instead of secular, because the term secular is a dirty word in in in, in Syria and I guess much much of the uh, Muslim majority world because they equate secularism to atheism. Oh, Almania, secularism is translates to Almani. But people would think that's you're, you're at this point you are you are glorifying um, atheist thoughts and putting away with morals. And, and by the way, by the way, like 
Syrian Christians too were not like they did not want to endorse secularism too. They they wanted um, they they wanted some form of you know it wasn't it was they didn't want a particularly Islamist system, but they didn't want they didn't want like a, a total like French system, the whole laicite. I see. So. Well, that's interesting. Um, I would have thought that secularism would be kind of a dirty word because of an association with authoritarianism. Um, within within for for I guess for Muslims, some some interpret it as atheism. Um, I guess I guess for authoritarianism, I guess it's socialism. Okay. I remember in, in my in my third semester at the American University of Beirut, I my friends and I we kickstarted this uh, student group called Students for a Free Syria. Um, and it was, it was a coalition of, 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 of students of different thoughts. Some of them, some of them were, were Islamists. Some of them were hardcore, hardcore, uh, secularists. Uh, some were leftists. Some were, some were on, on, I guess I could call them mercantile right-wingers. We, we have debates about how, how, how far Religion should influence politics in Syria. We could never really conclude anything. Um, but I, gen- I genuinely believe, should there be a, a genuine um, process to draft a constitution in Syria, I genuinely believe that the, the will of the majority would not would not want, by any degree, um, a, a, st- a state that would enforce it, it, that would it, enforce Islamic principles on you and minimize your rights. I think. There, there, there would be particular nuances and, and, and mechanisms to to balance these things, but not to the extent that you know you can't practice your religion because uh, we want the only religion that should be practiced is Islam. I, I never thought anyone that would advocate for such a fundamentalist rule of Syria would ever would ever reach power by by, by democracy. I I have heard it said. I've heard it claimed that. That form of thought, it's more popular among the Syrian diaspora than it is with people actually living in Syria. The sort of like Salafi Islamism. So it's hard to say because we can't rely on statistics, uh, but they, they are vocal. Here's the thing: they, they are vocal. Yeah. Um, the diaspora, and, and, at least. Yeah, and, and they do. They do have. They are organized. Now, um, I don't have numbers to back me up on this, but in terms of, say, the Syrian-American diaspora, there's always been Syrian immigration to the United States. However, in the 80s, there was, a, I think there was a particular, like, jump in Syrians immigrating to the States. And a lot of them, a lot of them came from, I guess, Muslim Brotherhood persuade, persuasions. Yeah, that's when they were getting slaughtered. Yeah, so... Um, but I don't have numbers to back me up on this. No statistics. It's it's something I've discussed with other members of the Syrian American community. Uh, there's also a sizable Syrian diaspora in Gulf Arab countries. Those countries, um, especially countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, they're just they're just more uh, Islamic than than Syria in the sense that you know Saudi Arabia is self declared custodian custodian of of Islam. Uh, of of the the most uh, the, the holy shrines of Islam. Sorry, so no no doubt they would have. You know, you, you go you go live in 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 a, in this host country. No doubt you're gonna pick up some things from there. So that's interesting. So you went from interning in Damascus to eventually 
going back to Beirut. Well, I, I need I need you to clarify. So you you talked about interacting with a lot of leftists. Was that in Damascus or in Beirut? Beirut, um, okay. Damascus. In Damascus, you have to be very careful about who who you would associate with. The wall. Uh, I, 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 I I only associate with my friends from high school. Hmm. Um, you know, because you could never really trust anyone. Damn. You could never really trust anyone, and, and uh, so if if there was anyone you really wanted to. Let know your actual opinions. It was just someone you knew for a while. Otherwise, I'm not risking. Uh, you, you. There's always, there's always this thought. Like, if someone's asking about your opinions, like, well, what does he want from you? What, is he genuinely interested, or is he trying to, you know, report you? This, this was a, this was a big thing in, in, in Syrian culture, um, modern culture. I don't know, but we had, we had this, this culture of fear where if, if someone, if you said something that that wasn't good to good about the regime you would get reported and you know the authorities would deal with you accordingly it's in some ways it sounds like um what life was like in east germany during the cold war i think i think you know i've heard stories of actually syrian intelligence agents actually getting lessons there yeah eastern germany i think i've heard of i think what's what's called spetsnaz the stasi the stasi yeah i, I heard that they, they actually taught Talk to your intelligence how how to behave. You know, um, people say don't say anything. They'll, they'll report you. You'll get in trouble. And I had a friend in high school who was who, you know, he was reported. And we think he, we think we identified the guy who who reported him. And he was a pro pro Assad Syrian um, that was also in my high school. And you know, and and I guess at that and, and here's here's a something I haven't discussed before. But this this was the point where you had some dear friends of yours that were, that you grew up with in high school and stuff. And this was such a controversial and splitting issue that I lost friends over it. Some close friends, but yeah, it was, uh, it got to the point we, you know, we, we exchanged, uh, niceties. We say hi's and goodbyes, but essentially we understood that this, we don't really want to associate with each other anymore. What happened to your friend who got reported? He fled Syria. He's he's a he's a he, he's a, he claimed asylum in the UK. So that was literally the inciting incident for him fleeing the country. As far as I know, yeah, I guess um, I haven't followed up with him. But and he would have been like eighteen years old or something, right? He was nineteen. Yeah. Wow, dude that that kind of thing is unimaginable for people who've grown up in country in a place like the United States or the UK mm-hmm. or uh, just a country where you can say stuff without the fear of the government coming after you. That's Sean, let me, let me tell you the, the worst way this manifested itself with regime supporters, not, not people who were, who were in any way agents of, of the Syrian regime, people who just supported the, the worst way would happen was there were some Syrian universities I didn't study, I didn't go to university in Syria, but, but this, but I, I am certain of this because I had friends that told me this. There were, there were Syrian universities where Syrian students would, that were opposed to the regime, they would, you know, they would coalesce and, and they would, you know, start, start protests in, in their universities, sizable protests. And their, their pro-regime colleagues, so what would happen is they started the protests, the regime should be how would break in. But they couldn't identify who who was supportive and who was uh, who was supportive of the regime and who was opposed to the regime. Well, what happened at that point where 
students, university students uh, loyal to the regime would point out to the Shabiha, this guy, I saw this guy protesting. I saw this guy write something on Facebook the other day. Oh, it my God. The, it got to the point where, you know, the buses, the buses that would pick up the students, take them home. Before, before, before they would, you know, the students would board the buses, but before they would be let out, they had to go through a, a regime checkpoint and pro-regime students would go with, with the, the Shabiha onto the bus and they would point out this guy, let him get him down, this guy, I saw. And my, my friend, my friend told me this. He said, I saw a guy get picked off a bus and then he was getting curb stomped. He wow. was getting curb stomped. You understand how, um, I, I I have a special um, I don't want to use the term hate, but I think I think that particular thing to to point out you you have a colleague in a in a it's a collegial setting a fellow student just like you you know that he was protesting peacefully okay and you know if you report him he's gonna get tortured and you chose to and I feel that these people should be punished. Yeah, they're definitely uh, complicit. That is. Beyond fucked up. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I I don't I don't believe in violence. I believe in the rule of law. I sincerely hope we can replicate something like I don't know the Nuremberg trials and and you know the bring these even even these people to uh, accountability. Yeah. They're liable. They are definitely yeah. liable. Part of the reason <clears throat> I mentioned East Germany and the Stasi. Um, it, based on files that got declassified, it's estimated that about 10% of the East German population were working as informants for the state. Mm-hmm. What do you think that percentage might be in Syria? I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know by, for, by any certainty, but I've, I've, I've heard, I've heard, uh, I've heard I've heard things like for every four Syrians, there's one one of one Syrian monitoring them. For um, every four, yeah. Holy crap! So, let, so let's say Syria is let's say a pop, let's, if Syria is a population of twenty million, okay. So that's that's twenty percent of twenty million. That that's four million. Um, I don't I don't think that's four million. I don't think it's four million. Um, that's a terrifying you, possibility. <laughs> Yeah, but, but, but if you think about it in a different way, if you think about it, if you think that there's a loyalist population that, that's willing to report you and that the regime makes it, it tells these people it's your patriotic duty to point out these people, then that, I guess it starts holding water. Yeah. You don't, so it doesn't mean that these people have to actively work for the regime, but these people are taught and trained and encouraged to report, uh, unloyal, unloyal Syrians. That is, wow. And like, these people, these, like, these pro-regime people you knew in school, did they, would they like go into the army after, or did they ever like, as far as you know, did any of them join up like the, the Shabiha or the, the NDF during the war? No. No. They didn't. Um, I, I, I'm, I came from a privileged background. I went to, okay. I guess, I guess I could describe it as an elite school in Damascus. People over there had money. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them were able to immigrate and live abroad and support the regime from abroad. It's kind of funny. It's like they, they, they love the regime and, and, and they think that Bashar is such a good leader that they immigrate. Um, 
Funny how that works. Yeah, it is. It's, uh... Like, we could both name some names right now. Some people who are well-known for having done that. Um, if, if you want me to give you a name, the first one I'll start this with Kivok Avanasian. Oh, yeah. Uh, Searing Armenian journalist in, in Germany. I don't know how that guy got, uh, got asylum. Because if you're trying to claim asylum, you need, you need to prove that you're fleeing, fleeing re- regime persecution. But he's constantly shilling for the Assad regime, so. Yeah, he's a strange one. There's also that, um, well, she, she goes by different names. There's like Partisan Girl, Syrian Girl. Oh, Mimi, me, me, yeah, yeah, Partisan, yeah. Uh, <laughs> she retweeted, she retweeted me once. Oh, I remember that, yeah. 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 Like, what, what's her deal? These people, like, do they come from like families that are connected to the regime? Um, so I, I, so I'm, I'm assuming here, I, I have no, no factual basis to, okay, to be certain about this, but uh, as far as I know, I think she's, she's based in Australia. Yeah. And a sizable part of the Syrian diaspora in Syria is, is, uh, supportive of this particular Syrian party called the, uh, Syrian Socialist Nationalist Party. Or is it, is it, it's either Socialist National Party or Socialist Nationalist Party, I the SSNP. I thought it was Social National Party. I, I, I think it's, it's either Social or Socialist. I'm not, I'm not certain. Yeah. And they, they, these people are particularly uh, opposed and wary of a, of a, of a Syria led by Islamists. And they are convinced, you know, they are, for, for, uh, I think, you know, they, they, they don't like Ba'athists either. They don't like the Arab, the Arab agenda of the Ba'athists. They, they were at odds with the Ba'athists. They actually, you know, when these guys were active in Syria, they even like, they even, um, assassinated Ba'athist officers. So they have bad blood with the Ba'ath. Bashar al-Assad, um, you know, they, they were illegal in Syria during Hafs' years. Bashar al-Assad made them legal again. I think, I think for them, the issue, the issue in Syria is, uh, whatever the Ba'athists, "Quote unquote secularism versus um, a hardcore militant Islamist rule." I think that's what they what they think. I think they have they have no faith in the Syrian people to make better decisions. And I think that's the most telling thing about Syrians that, that support Assad because they think he's Syria's best choice. Um, they have no faith in the Syrian people because I, I generally think if, if Syrians are given an opportunity to make a intelligent, uh, informed decision for elections and that people and that nominees can run, uh, without fear, without fear of reprisal. I really think Syrians can, can do so much better than an, an Islamist agenda or a pro or a Ba'athist agenda. Like whoever they pick, it would definitely be better than Assad. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it would not be, it would not be, uh, 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 Abu Hamad al-Jolan or Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. It would not be that. Yeah. But, yeah. But these people, they, they, they made this false by, this false, false choice of it's either Assad, uh, Assad's quote unquote secularism mm-hmm. or, or the Islamist militant theocracy. Militant uh, Islamic theocracy. Assad or we burn the country. Yeah. So, I've got one last question about protests, and then we'll get on to, like, why you haven't been able to go back to Syria. What were what were the slogans that you'd hear from, like, both... I mean, I, 
not only from the opposition protesters, but like I know there were some um there were some pro regime protests. I don't know how those were organized. I'm not I don't know how genuine those expressions were, but there were groups of people that would get together holding pictures of Bashar. Um like what what were what would you hear them saying? So in terms of the opposition, I guess the most, uh, you know, the, there were there were the gene- generic uh, wider um, Arab Spring ones. Ashabiri, this copy is on. The people want the fall of the regime. Allah suri hariyabas, God's Syrian freedom only, which was like a, 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 in contrast to God's Syrian Bashar only. Yilaru hakya ya hafiz, God damn your soul, uh, uh, oh hafiz, uh, you know Bashar's father. That explains why I see that one in some people's Twitter bios. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think what sometime you know as the Syrian as the Syrian protest started, you know, they started developing. They got they got a bit better and funnier. And what really makes them great was they started making songs, songs and communal dancing. You could see, you know, like Depke doing the Depke dance. Yeah, like um, you see videos where like thousands of people are gathered in a, in a square. Yes, yes. And singing very festive, very fun. Um, I think, I think it became like the, the, the like festive atmosphere. It became a fun thing to do. Like it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't about defiance anymore. It was about like having fun. So that was um, like later on in the year or? So I think, I think the first, the first like, you know, the first one that was just not, not an all protest, the first like one that's like, wait, these guys are, are like singing and having a good time. Was I think in Hama, uh, either in July or, or June, I forget. Was that Ibrahim like, Kashush? Ibrahim Kashush, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, but then, you know, like, you know, the, they, the government cracked down on that and it ended, and they, and they went to Hama. But then, like, other, other parts of Syria, they would do, like, synchronized dancing, synchronized ch- mu- music chanting. And it became, and it picked up everywhere, and, uh, it became it became fun. Like uh, it was something like I want to do this. It's uh, and you would have to learn the latest trends. Like okay, what are they doing in that? Oh, that sounds fun. I want to do that. You know, the way you chant. You know, there's became things like you know, uh, it's, it was all synchronized. You, you first you you gotta all kneel down. You say you, you chant quietly, and then on the third on the third time, you all all together simultaneously you all jump up and you start. Chanting loudly instead of in, 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 instead of chanting it silently, so it became it became fun. Uh, I can send you videos so you can like. I'd love to see those. I mean, that, uh, that sounds um what what you're describing just sounds amazing. Um, I I have seen one video of uh, that guy uh, Sarut in Homs, where it's like I don't know exactly what happened, but apparently a building got bombed. And somebody started filming, and Saru was like, "You, you can from the subtitles. I see that he's he's shouting, you know, everybody film this, film what they just did." And he gives this speech, this really epic speech about standing up to the regime. And then suddenly he just tells everybody to put their hands up like they're at a concert, and he starts singing, and the whole crowd just goes with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But i'll send you some footage and, and you'll know what i'm talking about yeah. uh, on the regime side on the regime side you know uh regime supporters whenever whenever i encountered them would say something like you know you guys you are people in the opposition whenever you gather you're not that many of course we can't be that many because we're, we're literally under threat of death 
But when they were, but you know, regime supporters, they would gather. They were massive, massive uh, gatherings. Uh, they would like fill whole squares because I mean they weren't scared. They didn't have to be scared of anything. Um, the you know transportation was taken care of. Um, I, I I can't tell you if anyone was forced to go there or not. I've heard stories of people who were forced to go there. I don't know anyone personally that was forced to go there. Um, but you know they, they at some point they started copying opposition. You know they take they take their songs. They would you know put on put on their pro regime lyrics and do it. It was annoying, but you know, it was if it it, it meant that they were aware. It, it meant they were watching what we were doing, and uh, these things in cell eleven pro pro regime gatherings were large. But I remember in in cell twelve they were sizably smaller, sizably smaller. Sorry. Why do you think that is? Um, you know, two thousand twelve was a tough year for the regime. Um. The opposition, the opposition, like really made moves. They they got a lot of power. Then these high profile defections. A, a, a prime minister defected. Uh, some of the closest people in the regime circle defected. Ambassadors were defecting. Um, mi- I, I not ministers, but people with like de- like I think deputy ministers were defecting. Um, Mustafa Klaas you know, was one of them, right? His son, enough. Mustafa Mustafa, I think, became. Uh, uh, senile, oh, so, okay. uh, but his son, his son, um, his son defected, and that was, I think, that was the the last big uh, Sunni in in the in, in a regime that uh, was the the, the Plus family. Wow. Uh, there was the the assassination of the of the crisis cell. So there was these four four big names uh, that ran the crisis cell: the the Minister of Defense. Uh, Bashar's in-law, uh, his brother-in-law, Asif Shokat, and two other figures, I forget their name. And those guys were assassinated in, you know, no one knows much about who who assassinated them. Some people yeah. would even say the regime assassinated themselves. Can't say, don't know. But if you were if you were a regime supporter, especially in the summer of 2012, you know, things were not looking good for you. So at that point, did did you and others in the opposition think that y'all were going to win this? That you were you it was were, you were going to overthrow the regime? It was yeah yeah yeah. Especially I remember people were telling me, I I uh, we thought it was very close. It was going to happen. It was any day now. Um, these defections, the prime minister defecting, that's huge. Yeah. That's, it, in 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 the U.S., that's the equivalent of you know you wake up one day you find Mike Pence on the TV. He, he's, he's in Canada. He's saying, I know, like, saying I will no longer work for the Trump administration. He's done all kinds of terrible things. This guy should be over, overthrown. Wow. That's, that's, that's the equivalent of what happened. But you know, Syria, Syria is not a country of institutions. Uh, the government doesn't mean much. So, and that's why it wasn't as big a deal as it should be. When was the last time you were, you were in Syria? September of 2012. What was going on in uh, 2012 that set it apart from 2011? Um, the, the militants around, the, you know, the, the armed opposition around uh, all of Syria, they had they had made big gains. Mm. They control they controlled outskirts of Damascus, chunks of Homs, chunks chunks of Aleppo. They, they took over half of Aleppo, a good chunk of Idlib, a uh, good chunk of, of southern Syria. Um, 
you know, that first protest I went to in August, August 1st, 20, 2011, the, the summer after that, the summer of 2012, the militants in Damascus, uh, they actually took over the site of my first protest. They reached, and, and mind you, that's just, Less, that's like four, four miles from Bashar's residence. That is so crazy. Like that, that in particular, that's something I've only recently become aware of is like how much of Damascus itself was lost to the rebels. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't like your typical war where you have like half the country controlled by one side and half the country's controlled by the other side. You had like a bunch of small localized insurgencies in different cities. Yeah. So so at this point in mid 2012 the war is on. And the war is on. Yeah. And the regime is doing I mean that's when like the barrel bombings and other horrific stuff was going on, right? Yeah. Cuz like we both know what ended up happening. They basically the regime killed an unbelievable amount of civilians. Mm-hmm. At this point at this point in I remember in, in, in 2012, there were, uh, ma- ma- massacres. There, it wasn't, it wasn't shooting a, a peaceful protesters anymore. It was regime should be hard going into villages and uh, villages and neighborhoods and like shooting children. Um, these people were not even engaged in protests. They happened and, um, there were two high profile incidents where it was, it was sectarian. It was, you know, this regime doesn't like to portray itself as sectarian. It likes to think it's representative of all Syrians in contrast to Islamist opposition Syrians that say, no, 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 we're prioritizing Islam in Syria. The regime, this was a, this was a case. I think there were two, there were at least two massacres where it was openly Alawites hunting and searching for and hunting down Sunnis. There's some um, really horrifying pictures and videos. Online, mm. of, or that's that's Hola, right? Uh, I, I, so so I, Hola is one of them, but uh, the particular ones I'm talking about okay. uh, happened uh, happened close to Syria's uh, coastal coastal towns. Um, okay, I, I'm so, my, my my memory doesn't can't serve me right right now, so I can't tell you which. There's uh, unfortunately there's several massacres. That's that's Ooh. just the sad fact of it. Jeez, yeah, it's like. When these things happen, oftentimes Western media, they'll like hyper focus on one of those incidents. But we, uh, over here, we end up losing sight of the fact that that's one of several, uh, concurrent incidents. Like people in the West will talk about Hula, but we oftentimes f- neglect to talk about the, the ones that you were t- describing. Yeah. I mean, would, would basically, the Assad regime since 2012 has been accused of committing a full-scale genocide against opponents of the regime. Would you say that's an accurate description of what they've done? What is the definition of genocide? I, you know, it's, I, I think, I think in terms of culpability and terrible things this regime has done, there's not much it could do to make the, the scale worse. Yeah. Um, but you know, people say that's not the actual definition of genocide, and genocide means I'm I'm actually going to contest this right now. What what does what is the definition of genocide? The deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group or nation. There you go. So 
you know, I think if someone wants to be an asshole about it, well, it's like, yeah, it was a deliberate killing of a large group of people, but it was not a particular ethnic group or nation. It was about a particular people who held a, a political opinion. Uh, so therefore, yeah. it does not fit the definition. Um, like some people might disagree with me, but I would say that um, a large group of people could include political groups. Like yeah. if you look at uh, a lot of genocides that went on in Latin America in the 1980s, those are described as anti-communist actions. Um, now, oftentimes it did take the form of ethnic oppression. You, you saw the genocide of the Maya people in Guatemala, but the justification given by the regime was that they were killing communists. So I, I, I don't agree with people who say that, that political groups don't fall into the quote-unquote large group of people bar for genocide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, if if uh, you can try to spin it in and, and call it that, but like I don't want to come up with, I don't want to, I don't want to like engage in these like small technicalities. It's just, it's it's bad, it's bad, yeah. and it's just like because I couldn't fit it into a particular uh, definition does not make it a- any better. Yeah, at the very least, the regime and those in charge of it are guilty of crimes against humanity. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. And you know, I think it's it's totally fine if you want to. You, you don't. We don't describe it as as a genocide, but mass mass killing, mass murder. Yeah, I guess that's good enough. I mean, bro, I, I don't know what else to call it other than a genocide. I mean, it's mur- mass murder on an industrial scale, both with the the prisons where people are getting tortured to death. You've got these bombing campaigns that are designed to kill. Basically, as many civilians as possible. You know, they mm-hmm. they just try to render any place that that they can't control. They just try to render it uninhabitable. Yeah, uh, yeah, they block shipments I, of food and medicine. I think that was that was the the objective. It's just like I feel that the regime at one point realized we can't hold on to these ter- territories. But what we'll do is we'll just make people that live there just hate their lives. That it's not worth it anymore. I think that was the, the yeah. The, the strategy. So in addition to killing large numbers of people, you're saying that one of their goals was to get a lot of people to flee so that they wouldn't be the regime's problem anymore. That, that, but also any, any, any alternative that was taking form on Syrian territory outside the regime's grasp, they, they realized we should never make, we should never allow them to carry on with their lives. We're just going to make it inhospitable. We can't, we can't hold on to their territory but we are going to make living there a living hell. And they prioritized neutralizing the local coordination councils. Exactly, exactly. Because, because you know, I think those those were destined to be the true heroes of Syria. It was not it was not going to be the armed opposition, um, or 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 the the opposition in the diaspora. It was it was going to be it was going to be the small scale uh, civilian administrators that were trying to form some sort of representative gov- government uh, entities for, for the Syrians in, in, in those particular areas. I think those were the real heroes that were, you know, starting to run administrations, bureaucracies, um, agencies. Those were the people we, we, that, should, that we wanted to, to step up and take, take control of, of, I guess, free Syria at, at that point, like, you know, the areas of both. Due to a multitude of reasons, some by the regime, some by the armed, armed opposition, they just those people just couldn't shine. They couldn't do their best job because they were stopped. 
Like these people you're talking about, they started off as activists before and during the revolution, and then when the war starts, they they never picked up a gun. They kept doing what they'd been doing. That that or or they yeah, and they started forming you know towns that was always running. You know they would rely on on public necessities by 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 regime run bureaucracies and now they have to form their own and people stepped up i've got a quick question and then i want to take us back to the when i asked you about your last time in syria Mm -hmm. when when would you say the war started you know uh the the first time i heard i heard from a um a more credible source that there were armed confrontations uh was the summer of sally levin the uh, a friend told me that Syrians in Homs were being supported by the Muslim Muslim Brotherhood, and they were be, they were given they were using arms against the regime. But he told me it was a very localized and isolated issue. So I guess like that's the first my, my first report of an armed confrontation from my non regime source was summer of 2011. Uh, that sounds like uh, the FSA in a nutshell, uh, localized and isolated. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know who were who were these armed people exactly. Whether they were defectors, whether they were Syrian civilians that said take up arms. I've I've I have not seen the armed violent side of the Syrian conflict as, as much as other people. I do recall though, however, in my last trips to Damascus, last few times I was there, I I would hear I would hear the the bombs and the shelling. Um. Wow. But otherwise, but otherwise, I can't really respond to that question. Did uh did you ever encounter anybody from the armed opposition? Never. Okay. Um not not in Syria. I I have I have um uh, been told that I have been told that a certain, when I was in Lebanon that a certain person uh was engaged with the armed opposition or something, but I can't verify that. Okay. What was that last time like? Um Damascus, uh, my last time in Syria? Yeah. So, was September of 2012, war was in full swing. A militant, milit, you know, armed opposition was controlling, uh, outskirts of Damascus. And there was, you know, there, there was, uh, a front line that was, you know, going forward and backwards every day. So, there was an act of war. At night, you would hear bombings, shelling it, and shooting. Inside Damascus, it was relatively safe. I, I remember I would I, I would walk with a friend around Damascus. Uh, it was a charged atmosphere. It was tense. You had to make sure that you were home by an earlier hour. But to that was a particularly interesting time for me because the first casualty from my um, from from my external family, uh, we heard of it September 2012. A relative of mine, Hussam Mahani. Uh, was abducted, uh, and then tortured to death in September. And my father told me, it's time for you to leave. And, uh, that's, that's how I left Damascus. Uh, those were the conditions. Jesus, man. Uh, the guy, uh, this, this, uh, Hussam was, uh, so he was, he was involved in the protests. He was also taking, he was supporting, I guess, families families of people that were affiliated with. Uh, I think I heard he was working with families affiliated with armed, armed opposition. So you know the fighters, 
their their families they had to be fed. They had someone. They needed someone to take care of them. And I think he would, uh, you know, coordinate like giving them food and stuff. So I, I think he would like he was deliver food and stuff and things for them, and uh, that's how they got him. That's why they got him. I guess not. Not that. Wow. Were were you and he close? I I uh, no, we were not. We um, I think I only met him a few times. Uh, you know, large large family gatherings. So it's it, it was not like a personal loss to me, but it was like someone that you know uh, I was proximate to. I'll be I'll send you right now the, his VDC. Uh, I send you on Twitter his VDC uh, link. So there's this database called the Virtual Documentation Center and documents all Syrians that were detained or killed and that and they confirm it. Um, poor guy, poor guy just had, had recently become a father. He had, he had a small baby daughter, very cute. So, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sad story. How, how old was he? In his, I, I think in his, around his mid twenties. That's, I'm always struck by how young so many of these people were who took so many risks. You know, people were passionate about this. They were, like, they're, Tension, emotions were going high. It was, uh, and you know, I, I guess you'll understand, but it's like, it's a worthy cause. It's not, yeah. it's not any, any small cause. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very, very worthy cause, but it was also so fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm. In the next episode, Mamoon tells us what it's like for someone who can't go back home and how he ended up living in Washington, D.C. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and thanks again, Mamoon Mahindi, for sharing your story with us. Man on the run How far can he go 